Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. But it's trying to maintain function in daily life and maintain as much independence as possible. Alzheimer's disease is a devastating illness that can impact the lives of those diagnosed and their loved ones. Recently, the FDA granted approval of a new Alzheimer's drug to fight this illness. Our experts weigh in on the effectiveness of the new drug. I believe that part of the FDA's response here was that this is a, a, a fatal disease. People will progress, they will die from this disorder, and we do not have anything else right now to offer them. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic q and I'm Dr. Jake Strand, sitting in for Dr. Helena Gazelka. Earlier this week, the Food and Drug Administration approved aducanumab to treat Alzheimer's disease. Aducanumab targets amyloid plaques in the brain that are believed to be an essential component of Alzheimer's disease. About 6 million people in the United States and 30 million people worldwide are currently living with Alzheimer's disease, a progressive brain disorder that is the most common cause of dementia. What does this news mean for Alzheimer's patients? Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic Neurologist and Director of Mayo Clinic's Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, Dr. Ronald Peterson, and Mayo Clinic Neurologist, Dr. David Notman. All right, well, let's start with you, Dr. Peterson. Could you just tell us a little bit about what this drug is designed to do to help patients with Alzheimer's disease? Uh, sure, Jake. Um, so aducanumab is a monoclonal antibody that is designed to be infused into the bloodstream, get into the brain, and remove amyloid plaques from the brain. Two of the defining features of Alzheimer's disease are the presence of amyloid plaques and tau-based tangles. This drug is designed to get the amyloid plaque out of the brain, or at least reduce the amount of amyloid in the brain. That, that's really helpful, because I, I, I think, I imagine a lot of patients, when they first heard the news that there was a new treatment for Alzheimer's, may have been envisioning a pill. There's some other pills that are used for, for Alzheimer's symptoms that some may be aware of. Uh, you mentioned this is an infusion. Um, what does it look like for a patient as they, as they might be a, a available for a treatment regimen? What, what does that mean for their, their treatment course? So, so if a patient were to receive this drug, he or she would come into a medical facility, have an intravenous line put in the arm, and then sit there in the chair while the drug is infused for about an hour, and then watched for a little while and, and then dismissed. So it does require an infusion, usually at a medical center. Uh, occasionally, there are these home infusion services so conceivably, it could be done at home, but generally, it's done in a medical center to monitor it for safety. Well, that's really helpful, and I, I think maybe just turning a little bit to some of you know the news re recently, because I know imagine there's a lot of questions, and I know you all have been fielding lots of questions. You know, this was subject to a pretty intense debate. I I work with a lot of patients um, who have already asked uh, some of my colleagues' questions. I have family members who have Alzheimer's disease and they're calling with questions. And so maybe Dr. Notman, I could ask you, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the debate around this? I know it's hard to put into words, but um, maybe we could talk about it and how you will talk to your patients about the risks and benefits. Right, thanks, Jake. Well, um, it's been a very contentious uh, discussion that's been going on for two years and it would take um, hours to describe all of that. But briefly, um, the studies uh, on which this approval was based were terminated prematurely or terminated back in March of 2019 when the company initially concluded that the drug did not show benefits. They then changed their mind. Uh, they presented it to an FDA advisory committee with the approval of the FDA leadership in November of 2020. 
The advisory committee roundly rejected the idea that it had clinical benefits, to be very blunt, um, and then the FDA leadership took this under advisement, and then with their report uh, on Monday, um, they uh, approved it in what's called an accelerated approval, uh, in which they uh, based the approval on the fact that it lowered brain amyloid, uh, mm -hmm. even though the clinical benefits were, um, let's say, uncertain. And that then is the segue to what I would say to patients, um, uh, even though my opinion might be clear from what I just said, I will uh, offer it to patients and we'll discuss it with them if the patient and family brings it up. But I will present both sides um, of what its um, possibilities might be for um, slowing decline of disease, never bringing about improvement, by the way, um, and the possibility that it may have uh, minimal benefits and let them decide. Well, I think that that's really a helpful piece as we think about you know, maybe this this next step, which sounds like there's even going to be, uh, because of all this disagreement, uh, another clinical trial. And maybe Dr. Peterson, could you tell us a little bit about this additional clinical trial um, proving, since it wasn't approved based on efficacy, they're going to do another trial about efficacy. What is that going to mean for patients? Well, it, it's an interesting situation because the drug will be available clinically. So physicians can prescribe it and patients can receive it. But as uh, Dr. Knappen indicated, uh, the FDA was uncertain as to the clinical utility of the drug. So they're requiring the sponsor uh, to do a phase four study, another study using the drug and seeing if it produces a clinical benefit. And if it does not, the FDA will remove the drug from the market. But during the interim, the drug will be available to patients. So it'll be incumbent upon the clinicians then to really describe the pluses and minuses of the situation. And hopefully the patients and families will make an informed decision as to whether they want to uh, undertake the treatment with the drug or not. Yeah, and, and maybe we could put within that, that kind of back and forth and these, these pros and cons. I, I know there's been, um, certainly as a person, not an expert in the field of Alzheimer's disease, but, but again, taking care of a lot of patients where that's um, really a, a key facet in their life. There's, there's a great deal of um, fear about this diagnosis and certainly a, a significant societal impact. And, um, and there's also been, you know, uh, hopes before of other drugs and even sounds like other drugs that have impacted these amyloid plaques. Dr. Naman, what, what does this mean for kind of the history of these drugs? And, and can you talk a little bit about this idea that amyloid plaques, we haven't shown there to be benefit yet. And so what, is, what does that mean for patients who are hoping for something that may, may help, even if it's uncertain? Well, Jake, that's a really good question. And I think that this FDA approval um, has made uh, the situation actually even more complex because it raises the possibility of what I think psychiatrists call um, therapeutic misunderstandings. Mm. Um, in the lay press, one might have the sense that this brought, drug brought about improvement, and there's no question that it never improved patients. At the best, it delayed progression. And we have experience with that in our field. It's a, a, with, with the existing very modest cholinesterase inhibitor drugs, um, that it's very difficult to see, delay, uh, and justify, or understand, or appreciate 
delay in progression. Um, and uh, the other uh, issue which we, we don't have uh, hours to, to talk about is whether uh, the lowering of amyloid realistically has any prospect of eventually bringing about clinical benefit. Um, recall that these studies were 18 months in duration and they didn't see clinical benefit, yet the FDA approval was on the basis uh, or, or on the, um, the expectation that at some point in the future it would. But um, to me, that seems like a real um, uh, un a promise that's gonna be difficult to fulfill. And, and maybe that's a, a really important question I, I could ask Dr. Peterson as a follow-up. You know, this idea of these short duration, we know that patients live for many, many years with Alzheimer's disease. You mentioned a little bit about this, this additional clinical trial that'll take place and the fact that that will be a challenge because there'll be people also able to, instead of, you know, getting the drug or maybe a placebo, they can go to somewhere where they can get the drug prescribed potentially. What sort of surveillance is the FDA and, and the, the companies and healthcare systems going to do to see if 36 months, you know, five years down the line, this is this has shown benefit. Do we have any information about that yet? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting situation, Jake, as to how the FDA will make the decision ultimately. They base it on the, the outcome of the phase four trial, but clearly there will be a lot of data generated by the clinical community over the time frame. And I think it's incumbent upon medical systems, Mayo being one of them, to generate uh, reliable and valid data. So I think we are going to develop a program that is designed to determine which patients might be most eligible for the treatment. And then we will follow them very closely clinically to determine what, if anything, is happening with the drug, clearly from a safety perspective, but also from an efficacy point of view. That is the drug stabilizing their clinician, their clinical condition. Now, keeping in mind, we'll just have to use historical controls, like how would people have progressed over this time frame if they were not treated with the drug? So that will be a challenge. The company is also uh, establishing registries around the country to follow patients in a more organized fashion. Whether that's going to produce uh, useful data, I think uh, remains to be seen. And, you know, and I think the hope, of course, um, for a lot of patients, I heard an interview with, um, with uh, members of, of the public and members of societies advocating for patients and their caregivers with Alzheimer's disease that, you know, we don't really feel like we have anything. And so something is better than nothing. And we can argue about that um, and, and, and the costs of, of that, um, both to the patient in terms of time and, and also from a cost perspective of the drug itself. But what I hear in those comments is this hope that this is just the beginning, that maybe this will help spur other types of therapies. And I wonder if you could share, Dr. Peterson, I'll ask both of you this question, what else is on the horizon and, and um, kind of taking from this, the lesson of this uh, kind of very complicated issue? Yeah, I, I might just comment, Jake, on, on your earlier observation that this may be just the first step in this direction. You know, Dr. Noppen mentioned that decades ago, he and I were around when cholinesterase inhibitors were introduced to the market. The first drug out there was something called Tacrin, which had a relatively short shelf life on the, on the clinical uh, field because uh, it was really not very good, but it did open the door for other cholinesterase inhibitors. Granted, they're just symptomatic medications, but three others followed, have been FDA approved, 
and now have been used for many, many years to try to stabilize some of the symptoms. I kind of view this in the same perspective. That is, this is the first of the disease-modifying therapies. I think there will be others coming down the road and, and probably better. And, and then it will remain the question of, are these disease-modifying therapies actually effective at, at, at what they're doing? So I, uh, I mean, I think it's going to be an interesting story to follow. Um, I, we're getting more sophisticated with regard to our evaluation of appropriate patients for these studies. I think our measurement techniques are getting better looking at the biomarkers that categorize people. So I, you know, I'm optimistic that we're going to learn a lot more. And I believe that part of the FDA's response here was that this is a, a, a fatal disease. People will progress, they will die from this disorder and we do not have anything else right now to offer them. And so I think that that entered into their decision as well. Yeah, and, that, and thanks for reflecting on that. And I, I think this piece about these other therapies, uh, Dr. Notman, maybe the same question for you. What do you see on the horizon? Uh, kind of yes, well, in, in, um, the, in the all of this, uh, I'm more um, uh, impressed by how the need will generate new ideas, and um, putting out a therapy that may have minimal benefits, um, uh, I don't think will particularly accomplish uh, that goal. I think the key um, is to find better targets for therapy. 50 or 60 years where cancer chemotherapy was in the doldrums with um, a relatively few benefits, and then along came um, the checkpoint inhibitors and other agents that were specific for particular mutations in solid tumors, and boom, all of a sudden you're seeing real benefits. And I'm not sure that the decades of treating with, um, uh, with the traditional antimyoplastic agents really um, enabled that process as much as the continued need of the failure of those agents ultimately to bring about real benefit. And that's how I see the situation here. It's the need to have better therapies. And I do think that uh, in my capacity in reviewing grants of phase one and phase two um, studies in this field, um, that there's tremendous ferment underneath um, in the biology of the disease and finding better targets. And so I'm hopeful in the future um, uh, that uh, we'll get lucky and, and find one that's much more potent than aducanumab. You know, Jake, if I, if I may yeah. comment on, on, on Dave's uh, observation, I think he's quite right, though this might be the first step such that ultimately, I think we're going to use combination therapy to treat cognitive disorders and aging. So it may be that while amyloid modulation may not provide a significant clinical impact, with it being on board, we might add, say, an anti-tau or an anti-tangle agent and that combination may very well be effective, but you need the amyloid backbone on which to treat the tau. So I, I think it opens the door for a variety of other combinatorial therapies that might be developed in the future. Well, maybe to kind of a last question, you know, one of the things that I think both of you have hit on, which is so critical, is this idea that we're all still struggling to figure out what the best outcomes to look at are. 
are and, and, and how we take care of patients ultimately. And I, I think um, I'm certainly uh, buoyed by the idea that Mayo Clinic continues to lead in, in figuring out the right biomarkers and the right ways to follow patients so that we can really target these, these cures to the right patients. And something else that I just wanted to ask about is, is how Maybe, maybe if this might, may not impact a specific score or um, you know, cognitive decline, it didn't show, what does it mean for quality of life? And is that something that will, uh, as an outcome measure, that um, what is the difference it's making in people's functional status and their quality of life over time? Um, do we have a sense of how, uh, where the, the state of research is in following a drug like aducanumab for those types of endpoints? I'll, I'll go uh, first here. I, I think, Jake, that's really a key question. And we don't really know the answer exactly. Uh, personally, I think that it's how people do in day-to-day -day affairs that counts. I don't really care as much about a mental status exam, except if it confirms what we're hearing from the family. But ultimately, um, we'd like stabilization of function at, an, at, a, at a high level of near independence. Um, we don't know what would we would ultimately settle for if that's the best we could do, uh, but it's trying to maintain function in daily life and maintain as much independence as possible. Uh, that uh, ultimately is the key, and we don't really know how much of that is enough. Yeah, yeah, it really it really comes down to what's called clinical meaningfulness. So how do you measure that? How do you measure what, how a person is functioning? Actually, here at Mayo, Dave and I are involved in a study called the Mayo Clinic Study of Aging, where we're following people who live in the community here in Rochester and Olmstead County. And this is a random sample of people as they're aging in place. And we are capturing a good deal of cognitive and functional data on them. And I think we're in a pretty good place to offer some reflections on what constitutes um, a clinical meaningful scale. And, and we're trying to contribute to the field in that respect. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic neurologist, Dr. Ronald Peterson and Dr. David Notman for joining us today on Mayo Clinic Q&A. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.